apocryphal story of when they first started doing computer vision training and they were trying to, of course it's always military, so they wanted to teach these, um, this system to be able to identify camouflage tanks, you know, look at a picture and find the tank in the picture. So they showed it, like you do with all these things, hundreds of pictures and pictures with tanks in, pictures without tanks in. And eventually they found out that this system was really good at detecting tanks and not tanks, but they dug into what it was actually doing. It was actually taught itself to be really good at detecting sunny days or cloudy days, because most of the pictures with tanks in have been taken on a sunny day and most of the pictures without tanks in have been taken on a cloudy day. On today's show, we're talking to Joe Bagley from VMware, and we're lucky to have him because we're talking about AI. Not just AI generically, but explainability. As new tools come onto the market, I think Inspirespan from Facebook, we have to ask about how uh, AI is teaching itself. If we're allowing AI to decide what data is relevant, how do we know that the decision it's making is a good decision? So that's today's topic of conversation. Uh, then afterwards, of course, we'll have a little bit of tech news. This is Tech Talks, your twice-weekly technology podcast with leaders from across our industry, hosted by myself, David Savage, and powered by the Harvey Nash Group. Welcome to this morning's podcast. I've got Chloe, who's a new voice on the podcast with us, and Akish. How are you both? Yes, good, thank you. Very yeah, I'm good, thank well. you. I did something impulsive last night. Bought a pair of trainers. No, oh. I bought something, not a pair of trainers. Right, right. I bought tickets to the Euro 2022 Women's Final at Wembley. It's all right, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Like I thought, that. you never know, because actually the last Women's World Cup kind of ended up getting quite into it. Mm. And, and you never know, people might get quite into this. And I just saw an advert on Twitter and the, G the women's GB team at the Olympics has got through the quarterfinals and they're not, they're not rubbish. So there's a chance they can reach the final in a home, in a home tournament. And just, even if they don't, it should be quite a good laugh. You just need any excuse to start singing It's Coming Home Again, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just like England bucket hat on, England shirt, it's just coming home, just <laughs> going up and down Wembley Way, you. I didn't yeah, even know women the, do it. What? Yeah, the women's the women's World Cup and women's Euros are, are, are getting quite big. Thank God! Uh, thank God we didn't say that, Dave. Hey. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, Ooh. if we said that, we would have been wow. crucified. Oh, thank God! Thank God we got Chloe for that. There we go. <laughs> my plan, and I hope my wife doesn't listen to this, is just not to bother telling her, and then to to quietly watch the tournament next year, and then hopefully they get through, and it'll be like, wouldn't it be quite cool if we could go see? Aha, but it'll probably be like Germany, France, USA. They've always got well, to do not it. in the Euros, mate. Oh yeah, sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah, Germany, France. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Could have done with a bit of of intelligence there. In fact, if there was some data that we could forget, it would be that. You're liking that. I like that. I like that. See, <laughs> I, I opened it up for you, mate. I, I, that's yeah, what I mean. perfect. <laughs> Tenuous link in today's interview. We'll, uh, we'll hand over to the interview with Joe Bagley from VMware, and then we'll come back with some commentary on it afterwards. So today I'm joined by Joe, uh, Joe Bagley, or the VP and CTO Amir for VMware. How are you today? Good. Not too warm in this heat wave when we're recording this, but it's all right. You're, you're not too warm. No, no, I'm down by the sea, so it's, it's got sea breezes to make it better. Ah well, I am I am very jealous of that fact because uh, I I am I am in central Manchester and uh, yesterday because of the minute I'm staying at friends I was working in a conservatory which was oh. I'll be honest fairly gruesome. That's horrible. Yeah yeah no I'm not doing that. 
Anyway, not the reason we're uh, we're talking. Um, we're primarily talking because there's been some interesting changes um, or announcements rather uh, about advancements in AI technology. Facebook have made some some announcements. We'll get onto that in a moment um, because whilst I imagine most people know who VMware are or have at least heard of VMware, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about the business and what you do for them as a as a kind of a way to kick off? Yeah, okay. I'll try to stay away from the sales pitch too much, but yeah. So. I'm the Vice President and Chief Technology Officer, which means I lead and represent the office of the CTO of VMware. For those of you that don't know VMware, we're probably, I think, the fourth or fifth largest software company in the world, depending on who you look at. And we're the largest software company a lot of people have never heard of. Uh, and we're about 33, 34,000 people globally now with revenues of, in excess of $11 billion. And um, our CTO office is really where we live and, run, and, and breathe and, and, and run all innovation out of. So. I'm looking at what's next, what technologies we're working on, what technologies we're going to invest in research, what we're going to actually build, uh, what we buy too. So it's always build or buy when you're in a software company as well. So really my life is spent working with our customers, sharing our strategy with the customers, and at the same time working internally with the board and our leadership on, on what we do next as a company to make sure we're still relevant and um, continue to grow as fast as we have done for the next 10 years. And so that's my daily job. Now it's interesting you say what's next because we kind of um, we mentioned at the top about Facebook making um, uh, advancements in AI technology and that's enabling machines to selectively forget um, <laughs> useless information on a massive scale. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because we're, we're increasingly harvesting more and more data. But I suppose the the what's next question there is all right. Well, if we can if we can forget data and given that data is so important to so many organisations, how do we decide? what information has value and what AI should forget, right? I think that's the point here. So this has always been a problem with, with just AI generally and machine learning, because you know a lot of people conflate machine learning and AI, so I'm going to conflate them in this conversation. But what, what you're looking at really is looking at ways, AI and machine learning are great ways of handling large amounts of data, but also to train them adequately, they need large amounts of data. So we're increasing the amount of data we collect and, and finding interesting ways to look at it. One of, one of the challenges with that, obviously, is just the sheer amount of it. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to store it? But also, it's it's looking at the quality of that data, too. And so what you're looking at here with what Facebook have done is they there's just some researchers talking about a technology called Expire Span, if you want to do some Googling and look it up. Um, and what that's really doing is starting to say, OK, fine, well, for some data that we're going to get, let the AI start to decide what data is important or not and start to add like an expiry date to data. So the data that it thinks is more interesting, it adds a sort of longer expiry date to. And the data that it doesn't think is interesting is shorter expiry date to. So, you know, when it's looking and doing research, a good example is mainly in, in natural language processing. So working out what people are saying and trying to come up with words and, and create words and create sentences. You know, forgetting some of the boring connectives like the ands and the ors and, and focusing more on the interesting words that, that are actually what the, what the thing's about, so to speak, I think is what you're talking about there. But I think like all these things, it's the thin end of a wedge when we start to say, OK, well, what data should we throw away to your point and what data should we keep? Should we let the AI itself and the machine learning algorithms decide what it keeps? Or do we have to do that? And, you know, do we have the capacity to do that? Are we able to do that? And then the other challenge which I'd like to get into is almost, you know, what biases can that create and what biases can it reinforce and what biases could it possibly remove? Because there's an awful lot of headlines around bias in AI, as I'm sure you know. So that's a, a big challenge for people, especially if we start to use AI for, for more important things that affect humans and, and you know, life, I suppose. 
Well, let, let's pick up on the point that you said there about interesting data, because I suppose that's a, that's a, a nice way into this, because who initially programs the machine to understand what interesting is and what interesting isn't? And I suppose that person or that organization's biases in terms of giving it parameters can create that problem, even if it's a, a small problem initially that then exacerbates and becomes a bigger problem, right? Yeah, and I think this is like any computer system. Any computer system, its biases are built by its programmers. And so, you know, if you if we forget AI completely now and just go, I'm going to write a program, then your biases are built into that program. And we've got fabulous examples of that, you know, right down to the, the, the famous one with the, with the hand dryer where someone had built a sensor on the hand dryer that it was detecting hands and it didn't work when it detected dark hands, but it worked really well when it detected light hands because that's whoever built it, only tested it and built it around light-colored hands, you know. When you then get to AI, AI is taking large data sets and educating itself and essentially teaching itself about what it should be thinking about that data set. That then gets into what data sets are we feeding it? And again, this gets into that bias problem. You know, what's interesting, what's not? Do we ensure that the bias, you know, if we an obvious and easy one is facial recognition systems. You know, are you putting in a fair representation of society? in the data set that you're using to train a facial recognition system? You know, are there the right number of types of faces going into this and to be able to train that properly? There's a apocryphal story of when they first started doing computer vision training and they were trying to, of course, it's always military. So they wanted to teach these, um, this system to be able to identify camouflage tanks, you know, look at a picture and find the tank in the picture. So they showed it like you do with all these things, hundreds of pictures and pictures with tanks in, pictures without tanks in. And eventually found out that this system was really good at detecting tanks and not tanks, but they dug into what it was actually doing. It was actually taught itself to be really good at detecting sunny days or cloudy days because most of the pictures with tanks in have been taken on a sunny day and most of the pictures without tanks in have been taken on a cloudy day. You know, So <laughs> this then leads us into it's not only the data set that comes into AI and what data biases are in that, but then it comes into working out what the AI has taught itself to do which is another area of research that's going on widely in the industry right now is around the explainability of AI. Because it's not only, okay, well, here's the data set I put in, but you could always say, oh, I put in tanks and no tanks, but it's trained itself completely differently. I didn't realize. And so there's that, because you know, if I wrote an application, I could explain the algorithms that went into it and how it's making decisions. If something's taught itself, how do you find out what it's taught itself? And as these systems get bigger and more complex, a more all-encompassing, that explainability becomes much more important, especially if it's being used as legal evidence, for example, or, or something else, or being able to make judgment on people, then that explainability is going to become really important. So it's not just about the data sets and working out what data should and shouldn't be in. It's more also how it's doing the calculations and what it's, what it's building. What, what kind of a, a system are you building here? Where does the responsibility lie here as well? Because there's a lot of companies that are creating and using their data and a business a consultancy might come along with an ai tool or machine learning tool and say right we can help your business make more efficient decisions um, and we're going to make you a better more productive business as a, as a as a consequence but that business that's using that tool didn't write the algorithms they don't know what the bias is there you know is it is it Who's, who's therefore uh, custodian of, of making sure that um, the decisions that that business is making are not riddled with the biases that we know exist out there? Is it, you know, it's their data, it's their decisions ultimately, or is it the piece of software that they've bought 
off the shelf and plugged in to make to help, to help make them make those decisions. It's a challenge, isn't it? It's the old, you know, remember the old adage, you know, crap in, crap out for computers. It was like, you know, you feed it with rubbish, it's going to come out with rubbish. So there's always the argument, your data there, you know, your data set was bad. Well, I'm sorry, if, if my data set was bad, that's not my problem. That's your problem. You should have said that the data set was bad in the first place. I think but that, that doesn't hold true here, right? No, that's the, that's the question. It leads us into another interesting legal point around AI in that it's where IP lives in this process, which is also going to become relevant in that same discussion you're talking about. Because here's a really good example. If, if I come into your organization and I train my algorithm using your data, Where's the IP in that? Because my algorithm, if I then take that algorithm and go and sell that algorithm to someone else, though I used your data to train it, it's my algorithm. So therefore, it's my IP. But I couldn't have created that algorithm without your data set. So, and there's a whole gray area, or well, it's not very gray at the moment, they're trying to sort it out in terms of where that IP sits as to, um, it, it's almost like, you know, if, if I went to university and learned how to speak Chinese, the university can't suddenly claim copyright on my ability to speak Chinese because they taught me Chinese. That's my IP. And that's where IP law sits at the moment. So again, that then lies back to liability. So for example, if I've used a wrong data set, tough luck because the IP and reliability must be in my algorithm that I built, not necessarily in the data set that was provided with. It's my fault for building the wrong algorithm and the AI for not learning properly. It's not the fault of the data set. So... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think, I, I, I'll be honest, I think that they, they, they hits a limit where my, where my ability to kind of question further uh, comes up. But I'd be very interested to see if anyone listening kind of has some extra comments on that. If we switch our focus, though, to, um, to, to, to sustainability, because, you know, when we're talking about what's next, again, to go back to that initial point, mm-hmm. um, a lot of organisations are beginning to thankfully take responsibility for um their footprint in a, in a very real way you know organizations they I, I i somehow feel that maybe five years ago it was kind of a tick the box exercise and now there there is more pressure on organizations to to really do more uh and some organizations are using ai to make their supply chains more efficient and therefore yeah. have a smaller footprint but of course ai itself takes a huge amount of power to, to make this work. And where you've got uh, data centers around the world, those data centers and the internet in itself is, is consuming a huge amount of power just to operate. So how do we ensure that whilst we're unlocking lots of positives through AI, that we're not creating a whole new issue in the background that I, I suspect a lot of people at the minute are not aware of? Yeah, and I think this comes down again to, to people being aware of what they're creating as they create it. So, you know, this, you know, this is almost like the, the whole Bitcoin thing. You know, I'm sure that when they created Bitcoin, if they'd realized the massive environmental impact it had, then they probably would have done it differently as now Ethereum are doing by switching to proof of stake rather than proof of work. And so I think it's the same when you look at AI and machine learning. Rightly, as you say, machine learning algorithms um, are huge users of processing power, hence the, the growth in GPUs and, you know, all the very specialist processes, even deeper use data processing units that are being created now for handling large amounts of data and for processing them for machine learning processes. And we're seeing bigger and bigger, you know, HPC high performance computing installations being built still to this day. And that's never going to stop. I think what we have to do and what I'm seeing certainly within VMware is we're seeing a focus from an ESG perspective uh, around sustainable coding 
So making someone think a little bit more about the code that they're building and the impact that that code will have when it's actually run in production or even when it goes through it. You know, if I can eliminate one line of code, every time that line of code runs, that's saving me, you know, one tiny bit of electricity, but multiply that by a billion things and suddenly it's an impact. So I think we've gone through this process, those of in the audience that have sat around in the IT industry for a long time, well, you know, we've gone through the world of assembler, which is where I actually started coding MNP5 into some algorithms a very long time ago, down to individual chips, where I had very, very tiny memory space, to now writing in these highly abstract languages at the upper level, you know, serverless, as we're now hearing it, that, you know, I just, it's almost codeless coding, so to speak. There's an awful lot of compute power has to go into making that so simple at the top. So I think, it's time now, and you will see a time when we'll see people focus much more on sustainability of code and sustainability of what people are building. And I think we were hoping that would be driven by cost, you know, in terms of, you know, as, as computing costs get more expensive, people were driven that way. Unfortunately, you know, Jevons paradox sort of screws that one up every time and, and we end up just using more and more resources. Um so yeah, for those that don't understand the Jevons paradox thing, that comes back from an economist back, William Stanley, or William Jevons, I think it was back in the 1800s, where someone said, if we make a more efficient steam engine, we'll use less coal. What that actually meant was, if you make a more efficient steam engine, people, more people could afford steam engines, therefore more people used coal. So coal didn't get used less, it got used more. That's the problem we've got with computing now. As we find more efficient ways to do computing, it becomes available to more people, so we consume more of it. So I think relying on cost being a factor to drive people down in using resources is probably not the best way. We need to start a much more altruistic focus on sustainability and asking people to look to be a bit more sustainable in their code and understanding that. And I think we're starting to see that. It's certainly starting within VMware, but I'm seeing it in other places too. So your, your role, it's quite funny listening to you talk because um, for some reason I'm reminded of Margin Call. Is it a film you've seen? Uh, I don't think so. No, margin call. No. There's this, there's this wonderful. There's this wonderful scene where Jeremy Irons comes in and he plays the CEO of the fictitious bank, uh, and he says basically his job is to listen to the music uh, and to predict what what's going to be played next. And, and it was in the midst of the financial crisis, and he, he kind of his statement is that all he hears right now is silence. Right. Um, but as someone who's got their ear to the market, as someone who's got to try and predict what's coming next, what are you hearing? What are you hearing from your clients? Uh, where, what do you think the questions that they're asking you are telling you though about the general direction that we're heading in? Yeah, so it's really interesting talking to that because you know you, you can listen to the the very the, the bleeding edge all the time. So you can listen to the you know the headline companies, and that's always interesting because that's where you're going to pick up some of the new exciting technology that's being used. But if you take that step back from the mavens to sort of the second wave, which is almost what I call the front edge of the enterprise which is where I'm talking to a lot. And, you know, I'm going around tracking the mavens and the cool stuff and hanging around with the right people. But my point is seeing where that comes from, that sort of pioneer work into what we call the settler work, where we're actually productizing that. The, the, the enterprises I'm talking to now are realizing that they've spent a long time focusing on infrastructure. They've spent a long time focusing on where their stuff's running and how they're running it from terms of technology. And now they're realizing, actually, the future is all about apps. And I don't mean it's all about how many apps have I got running on my mobile phone and have you got a cool mobile app. That's not what I mean. It's about understanding the apps that run their business. And so when I go and talk to leaders in, in large enterprises right now, that conversation is starting to tip. Before it was, I'm going to the cloud. You'd be like, that's nice. What does that mean? You know, that, that's great. Which cloud are you going to? That's fun. Now when they go, I'm going to the cloud, I'm like, Why? You know, why are you going to the cloud? Is it because someone on the golf course told you it was cool? Is that why you're going to the cloud? 
The interesting conversations is when I'm having conversations with people about what we call application portfolio planning, where instead they're going, right, I've looked across my enterprise, I've got 5,000 applications. I'm now sitting down and going, okay, well, these ones I don't care about, they're going to wither on the vine. These ones I need to reinvent. These ones we need to just move over there and run cheaper. And so people are looking at it from a, what is it that runs our business? Because I think people are now realizing that it is applications, which is why IT exists, not for the sake of the infrastructure. So it's almost like stop staring at data centers and looking how cool they are and wondering how you're going to take what that is there and put it into a cloud. But turn over there and look at what are the apps that you're using to build and run your business and how are they changing? And where do you see those going in the next three to five years? So yeah, that's very much how the conversations are being led with the people I'm talking to. And yeah, you've got to cut through an awful lot of noise around serverless and containers and Kubernetes and all these other cool buzzwords you'll hear in the industry to what actually matters, which is, am I going to have the right apps and data in the hands of the people in my business that need to use it when they need it? And the recent pandemic was a really good example of a whole bunch of people realized that they built systems that were not flexible, were not resilient. So when suddenly someone had to pick everything up and run it from home, nothing worked because it wasn't built like that. You know, so people are now realizing I need to focus on having the applications and data in the hands of the right people at the right time. And I think that's probably the big realization I'm seeing in the marketplace. And that's where obviously AI and ML, because they're starting to say, okay, well, can I use AI and ML to sort out all the complexity of the stuff I've got now? And mm. if, you know, you know, there's that famous saying, you know, from, from Google is, you know, today's the you know, fastest time that any you know, technology has been evolving in human history, which is great fun until you realize it's also the slowest day it's going to be evolving for the rest of your life. So if you're not caught up now, you're kind of screwed. So they're kind of looking back at this world going, hmm, I could use AI to sort that out, but how's it going to help me in the future? And I think it's like all these technologies, to be honest, David, that people go, oh, that's going to solve everything. It was cloud. That's going to solve everything. Now people realize that's not going to solve everything. So it's always oh, it AI. That's going to solve everything. No, it isn't. Come talk to me in five years' time. It's going to be quantum. Is that going to solve everything? No, it isn't. You know, and we'll move on. <laughs> well, it's been fascinating to chat to you. I really appreciate you giving up some time today. And uh, hopefully you, you do get to... Uh, enjoy a little bit of that coastal weather i'm very jealous of the fact that you can escape some of the heat but uh yeah thanks for your time on the podcast no worries it's been a pleasure thanks for having me david right i was listening back to this and i've got a question do either of you have (laughs) if ai is deciding what data has value would the data that the internet has on any of us (laughs) get get like the shortest expiry date that ai could assign yeah probably (laughs) yeah my, uh, we've had this chat before on this pod. Like my data footprint is shit. Like it's crap. And I reckon if we went all the way back to the first time that I came onto the internet or whatever, like back in the school days, it's just crap in it. Really, there's no value. I'm not adding any value to anyone. Really, or <laughs> doing anything. Don't know about you, Chloe. I don't want to think back to what happened when I was younger and what I wrote on there. Yeah. Oh, good. It's it's funny, isn't it? Whenever there's a politician who kind of like gets newly elected into something now, there's always a tweet for the press to jump on. And increasingly, it's like, I know if I ever, I mean, it's not going to happen, but I know if I ever got into a position where I was kind of in the public eye, I have written a lot of shit that would look really bad out of context mm-hmm. that I really would like AI just to go, that's not relevant, write it off. Sometimes, you know, when um, I don't know if any of you are still on Facebook, but like, you know, sometimes it comes up with like 10 years ago, you like posted this or 12 years ago, you post this. 
I've seen some stuff come up on my feed. I've gone, oh, oh, it's a bit, it's a bit risky, isn't it? Where I've like said stuff and and put put out statuses, and obviously you can't deny it's not been anyone. Um, but yeah, it's just oh, I don't know. It's yeah, it's it's not ideal. And sometimes I do think that I'm not in the public eye, and tech talks is kind of just goes under the radar a little bit. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Well, you know, Facebook, you mentioned Facebook, expire span exists now, so you might be safe. I hope so, mate. I hope so. But but you get that in the in the sports world as well. You get like, you know, as soon as there's someone new or and and I hate to say it, but we've got the Olympics on at the moment. There'll be someone mm. who wins a gold medal or, or or does really well in their particular sport. They'll get a load of plaudits and then I guarantee you 2-3 weeks down the line there'll be something in the press about that person. Yeah, he or she did this, they wrote this. And it's just, yeah, I mean, if they had some sort of AI to, to help just eradicate all that sort of stuff, then, you know, it would make people's life easier. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's kind of tenuous, but there is a link to the fact that there's so much data created all the time. And Joe's point, you know, being you need large amounts of data, but there are quality concerns at the same time. So, um, you know, we are absolutely kind of, we have this, impossible to quench thirst for information all the time there's there's god knows how many different sources of media there's data being created across social media platforms all the time and then you look at the the olympics is it any wonder that people like simone biles decide that they have to take a step back because they're just constantly in the eye like if john McEnroe lost a match in the 70s he could quite easily disappear for a few weeks and get off grid uh, whereas now, if you're in the public eye and you're a sports person in particular, you just get constantly crucified. Mm. Can we just ask if Chloe knows who John McEnroe is in the 70s? I have no idea. See, I, I know oh who Simone is, I don't know who that is. <laughs> Do you know what? I saw her, I saw her face. <laughs> and she kind of just was like, she's kind of like nodding, but like, who the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. I can't lie. Oh, this reminds me of a time. I went to, 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 to my brother-in-law's birthday party. My brother-in-law is eight years younger than my wife, so 10 years younger than me. And I walked in there and I was feeling a little bit under the weather. And I sat down and spoke to all of his friends who are all like quite significantly younger than me about the time that Jarvis Cocker lamped uh, Michael Jackson at the Brits. And they were just looking at me like, who is this out of touch weirdo? <laughs> Just, just for Bobby, tell me you know who Jarvis Cocker is, right? Nope. You don't know who Jarvis Cocker is? No. Oh, God. I know who Michael Jackson is, but I don't know who that is. You know who Paul Parr, right? No. Paul Parr? Uh, this, pulp. Right. Pulp. <laughs> this is just turning into me and Akish proving that we're old. Yeah, right. we're, okay. we're old. <laughs> yeah, forget about it. Anyway, Chloe, let's, let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> very famous tennis player, always in the public eye, a bit controversial. Yeah. yeah, I think he's on like an Evian ad now. Sometimes, isn't he? I've seen him. He does a lot. He does a lot of Wimbledon commentary as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he's not allowed, is he? Because of uh, some comments that he made to shock. Oh, I didn't know. That. I I mm. didn't keep a track of Wimbledon this year. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Get, getting back on track, explainability of AI though. This is really. I think this is a really important point. If something has taught itself, how do we know how it made that decision? Is a really interesting kind of conundrum for organizations because we've spoken on this podcast recently a lot about organizations relying on 
AI for even low level decisions, you know, not necessarily the strategy, but just processes, ongoing processes all the time. We had Peak on the show, uh, Tom New, um, and he explained how this could really help an organization kind of optimize, free up time for employees. Great. But if it gets to the point where you can't even explain how an AI uh, pro- platform has made the decision it's making, that is a, that is an entirely new conundrum that, that I hadn't really considered before. It's it's almost you you're leaving a lot of um, you're, you're leaving a lot of decision making in the hands of technology, and it's that age old argument to say technology can help us make better decisions and better solutions, but technology isn't going to be making the decision. Do you know what I mean? It's it, yeah. It's it's that kind of toss. I don't know what what you reckon, Chloe, but so I think it's it's difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think it can be quite worrying. I think tech should be used to like enhance and like make things better, but I also think you should leave it down to the people who know what they're doing and things like that. So, yeah, I definitely think it can be quite worrying. Kind of makes me think a little bit of the Wizard of Oz, right? So, can we, can we ask if Chloe knows what Wizard, Wizard of Oz is? Just I do, but I haven't seen the film. <laughs> used to scare the shit out of me. I used to hide behind the sofa when the Wicked Witch was. Anyway. Um, there's that thing isn't there that like if you gave like if you presented new technology to people who had no idea what technology was they'd just think it was magic like because they couldn't explain how it was happening and if you understand how it's happening then it's like oh well it's it's just science but if we kind of move back to a point where it's like we can't even explain how ai is making the decisions it's making it would almost become kind of magical again (laughs) it's just you have to understand like that explainability point is really important i think i think when joe's talking about that 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 would worry me if we got to a point where we kind of became a little bit distant from how technology itself is making these decisions and overly reliant on it. I don't think that's a good place generally for organizations and society more generally to be. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Anyway, um, anything else that anyone anyone would bring up from that interview? No, I, th- I think it's good. I think it's, it's um, having someone from the likes of VMware, you know, shed a shed a light on, on challenges and stuff. VMware is, well, I say a household name, but if you're in technology and you've been... If you're in tech, yeah. If you're in tech, you know who they are, what they do. And, and for for a long time, they were pioneers of, you know, the, the kind of types of products and things that they, they were offering. So I think for having someone like that to, to come on and be very open and honest around, you know, yes, technology is great and where it's going, but also we still need to be a bit careful and, and particularly you know i i guess just have an eye on the quality of the data what we're doing with it and, and how that can be used um so i think it was a good interview actually enjoyed it good well look let's take an advert break and when we come back we're going to be talking about a journey from lands End to john O'Groats, made in an electric car Ooh. a couple of years ago michael and jacob two friends from london were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole Michael, a professional footballer at the time, realised he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear. Overconsumption and underuse was all too common. Hilo was born, a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They've started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe can be recycled at the end of its life. As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at hiloathletics.com. That's H-Y-L-O. We support the Hilo movement. So, um, 
Welcome back to the show. We've got a quick bit of tech news that we thought we'd have a quick chat about. We've been talking a lot about electricity, uh, start that again, about electric vehicles and sustainable electricity on the show recently. Uh, and The Guardian has an interesting article, leading the charge, can I make it from Land's End to John O'Groats in an electric car? New petrol and diesel cars banned in the UK from 2013. Sales of electric vehicles are rising fast, but with drivers reliant on charging points, how practical is the greener option? Keith, you're a bit of a petrol head. Uh yeah, yeah, I've I've got a car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that makes that makes you more of a petrol head than me. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, where where we've obviously spoken a lot about the positives of of, a, of an electric vehicle. Would mm. you make the switch at the minute, or would you kind of go, well, it's it's all very well, but I might run out of juice and not know or not be near enough to a charging point yeah. when I need one. So so I I'll be honest. I have driven a couple of electric cars. One very good electric car and one not so good um just like friends that have that have them um i am tempted to make the switch i'm not gonna lie um just because of where i live as well in in southeast london it's just a lot cheaper to to keep on around here with things like the emission zones and congestion charge and all these sorts of things if i want to go into central london um i think at the moment as as a country we're probably not set up to have the infrastructure to support this I think in parts, in certain places, yeah, it's good. But I wouldn't make the switch right now because I, I also, being a, being a bit of a, a technology, I guess, enthusiast, um, I also think that there's a lot more that they could probably do with these electric cars in terms of speed, in terms of, you know, just the experience that you have. Um, so I'm going to hold out. I've got a couple of years left until I need to change my car. So... I, I I do think there's a highly likely chance that my next car will be an electric car. But according no, no. to figures released in July, right, the sale of new electric cars jumped fifty percent on the previous month. So, mm. of the thirty million cars in the UK roads, only about two hundred and fifty thousand are purely electric. But mm. if it's jumping by fifty percent, mm. that is nuts. That that is that is that is going up at a hell of a rate. And they reckon that electric vehicles will outsell petrol and diesel models by about twenty twenty five. Yeah, they probably were. And also, do you know what? Yeah, I, I think the biggest advancement that they've had is you've got the higher end, more luxury brands producing electric vehicles now. Whereas mm -hmm. at, at the start, I mean, it's a joke, isn't it? If, if you order an Uber, it's going to be an electric Toyota Prius or whatever they're called. And, you know, that sort of thing. And it was only those sort of brands that were making these electric vehicles. But now you've got the likes of Audi, Mercedes, BMW, Porsche. Um you know, Ferrari are coming out with an electric Ferrari. So I wonder what that's going to be like. But, you know, I think that's where the sales are also going to go up because people can now actually have a very, very nice car um, and still be looking after the environment and, and yeah. things like that. So I think it's good. Chloe, do you drive? I did. I gave up my car a few years ago, but like, I'm, not, I'm not the biggest fan of driving. So I'm happy with the train. I mean, living on Jersey... Yeah. It's not a particularly big place. I don't suppose there's a huge need to drive at home. There is not. You can walk to pretty much most places, but we've got buses as well. So, But do you have a lot of electric cars there? Like people that have cars? Like what's the... They're definitely getting better, but nowhere near as probably as much as the UK. Like everything the UK do, we're always like way behind. So I saw a guy filling up his, um, or like charging his car the other day. I just find it so odd. So for me to get an electric car, I would have to be like, I have to be influenced by like my friends and stuff because I like to stick with what I know because I don't like driving in like anyway. I mean, on the one hand, right, this is this is the two sides of it. So I would imagine that the infrastructure is quite a long way behind 
in Jersey on that front. You've kind of alluded to that there, which kind of makes you suggest that people would be slow to adopt it. But at the same time, because it's quite a small island, if you do have a charging point at home, they're massively cheaper and you're probably not going to run out of range driving around Jersey. You're always going to be, if it's it's fully charged, you're never going to get to a position where you're stuck. No, that is very true. I mean, we're not that bad. I like I made it out like we're way behind, but we're not that bad. We have we have a few charging points, but nowhere near as much. But but if you do get stuck, you know, you're only going to be ten minutes from home, so you can always walk home. Oh, I just leave the car there, and I'll yeah, just walk, exactly. yeah get out and walk. Yeah, we'll there's always a way out. Day. Come back to it another day. We'll, we'll leave it. We'll, <laughs> yeah. We'll Jersey f- full now. of abandoned cars. <laughs> Mate, it 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 could actually be one of these areas where they could test them out, right? Like test out how the infrastructure works. Is it might not be Jersey, but where was the the track and trace app like piloted? That was Isle of White. Isle of White, yeah, yeah, it was Isle of White, yeah. So you could use that like smaller, you know, kind of I guess more on a manageable scale kind of population to then um, kind of do it. But I think the government are also offering some sort of like um, yeah, incentives and or, or you know some sort of like packages or something, aren't they? I yeah. think it's uh, it's two and a half grand. Two and a half grand, yeah. Grant to buy a car yeah i mean well that's that's not going to get you much if you get a new well yeah the, the cheapest tesla is about 40 grand yeah exactly even if you buy a skoda it's about thirty-four thousand. yeah not nothing against skoda but it's not exactly <laughs> no. ferrari that you're yeah. talking about before but at least it's something you know um which which obviously it, it kind of helps um but then yeah so i i don't, I don't know what's going to happen with petrol cars I, I don't know if they'll just go extinct one day who knows but i think they probably will do you reckon Mm, collectors yeah. collectors items i don't know they'll be like, the <laughs> preserve they'll be the preserve of f1 and yeah yeah you know which well, yeah i mean if every if everyone else was electric you could probably kind of go oh well it's quite nice to have something that well when are we going to see electric airplanes that's what i want to know when they stop taking fuel mate that would be scary i mean yeah it'd be great but it would be scary because they would be really quiet you know what i'm saying which i think would be unnerving well, but then, but then, at least if you're living in a flight path, your house value can go up because they're not making any noise. Yeah, that's true, and they're not <laughs> dumping a whole load of fumes on your garden, exactly. leading to stuff just randomly dying. You used to live under a flight path, didn't you? Yeah, oh, yeah, you could read yeah, the serial yeah. numbers off them. Yeah, yeah landing exactly. gear coming out and everything. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> <laughs> whenever you go on like an easy jet though, like a small plane, does it not like unnerve you slightly that it doesn't sound like a plane? It just kind of buzzes a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, true, true. But I always that, hate when like, the lights flicker like on the plane as well. Like you're like, oh my gosh, it's breaking down. Yeah, but that's the experience of flying EasyJet or Ryanair or <laughs> one of these ones. Yeah, tight, cramped, normally hungover with a load of stag and Hindu parties and the plane looks like it could break at any time. But hey-ho, you're on your way to Ibiza. No worries. <laughs> hopefully, six six weeks, hopefully. <laughs> oh, right, anyway, I think that'll do for today's show. Uh Keish, thank you for your time. Chloe, thank you for making some time as well. Uh, And we'll be back early next week.